Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Slate's Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 9th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Sports Illustrated's Alexander Wolf to talk about the death of legendary North Carolina basketball coach Dean Smith. Nathaniel Vinton, author of the book The Fall Line, How American Ski Racers Conquered a Sport on the Edge, will be here to talk about whether American ski racers are conquering the Alpine Skiing World Championships in Colorado. To finish off our guest Palooza, filmmaker John Hawk will join us for a conversation about his new documentary for ESPN of Miracles and Men, which examines the U.S. hockey team's triumph in 1980 from the perspective of their Soviet opponents. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll assess Diana Taurasi's decision to skip the WNBA season after her Russian team paid her more than her WNBA salary to sit out and rest. I'm all alone today in Washington, D.C., but palling around with Mike Pesca in New York is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hey, buddy. Ah, oh, sorry, I didn't hear you. Josh, uh, uh, Pesca and I are too busy palling around. We were just uh, say something. Palling. We were having so much yeah. fun. Yeah, it's devastating. We were all, you know, what we were all palsy wowsy. <laughs> well, I've spread all my shit all over the table here, so <laughs> all keep, over the hang-up table. So I feel great about myself. The table's going to tweet about that. Has the table <laughs> tweeted in a while? It hasn't. It's just been loaded down with Stefan's bags, and right. <laughs> it's just can't can't tweet. Uh, hey, Mike. <laughs> How you doing there, Joshy? I'm good. Uh, you're the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, with you got Mike that Pesca. Right. Yeah. Uh, got anything great planned on the show this week? We got yeah, to we'll do go- more cross-promoting. 
we're going to be analyzing world news events from a perspective of an interested observer. <laughs> an interested it's a good observer. Thing you're not a, an uninterested observer. That's right. Because that would be a boring show. No, nah, maybe you make it more interesting. Eh, I don't care. <laughs> Let's move on to another topic. Eh, I don't care <laughs> about <laughs> that either. <laughs> Let's find something else to talk about. Okay, moving on to another topic, as instructed. Dean Smith, who coached the North Carolina Tar Heels men's basketball team to 879 victories and two national titles from 1961 to 1997, died over the weekend at age 83. Smith, who coached Michael Jordan, James Worthy, Phil Ford, Sam Perkins, Rasheed Wallace, and Vince Carter, among many others, was known for fostering a team-oriented style of basketball, one that valorized the pass ahead of the shot, to the extent that he required the man who scored a basket to point to his teammate who provided the assist. But in remembrances over the weekend, Smith's progressivism off the court is getting just as much attention as his wins on it. From his being the first ACC coach to offer a scholarship to a black athlete, to the role he played in helping to integrate restaurants and housing in Chapel Hill. Sports Illustrated's Alexander Wolfe covered Smith for years and has written two excellent stories over the last couple days about the man and the impact he had on his Tar Heels players. Alex, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here to talk about this guy. He really was a giant. So where did Dean Smith come from, Alex? Um, who were his parents? Um, who were his coaches? Who kind of instilled the values that he instilled to his players? Well, he, he has this unlikely pedigree. He's not the only person to make his way to North Carolina from Kansas. Roy Williams traveled the same distance, but he grew up in Emporia, a railroading town in Kansas. His parents were both school teachers and devout Baptists. And he threw himself into sports at a young age, played the three major team sports, and went off to the University of Kansas in Lawrence at a time that Fog Allen was the coach. Didn't play a whole lot, but was always sort of sitting there at, you know, at the elbow of, of Doc Allen and soaking everything up. It seemed like every sport he played, he'd be in that kind of coachly position. He was a catcher in baseball and a quarterback in football, and, and a point guard, scrappy point guard in basketball. So, X's and O's wise, as I consider Dean Smith, he was a great coach. He sometimes got criticism for a boring style of offense, like the four corners, where you can maybe give your opinion if it really did usher in the shot clock. I thought that was inevitable anyway. But the more you hear, and I guess I was a little too young to really appreciate it, the more you hear about his defensive innovations, the more you realize that this guy had as an expansive and creative a mind, basketball-wise, as anyone. He was. He spent time as an assistant coach at Air Force and uh, for Bob Spear. And Air Force, back then as it does today, had that height restriction. So it forced the coaching staff to be even more innovative, and I think that was where he got the germ of the idea for the four corners, for spreading the floor and letting sort of speed and ball handling carry the day. Uh, the other thing he did, we didn't see a whole lot of um, through the, the late 80s and the 90s because the three-point shot came in and kind of obviated its effectiveness, but he had this scramble, this run-and-jump scramble defense in the half court, and you know, everybody says he was he was rigid and he had this system. And in fact, when the three point shot came in, he abandoned the run and jump because he was a practical guy. He realized he'd just be leaving three point shooters wide open. So, no, he was a very kind of restless mind. Not just the way he approached basketball, but always grappling with with larger issues and loved to read philosophy. Um, and even though he had this Baptist upbringing, really strict. 
was constantly testing it. Um, and, you know, it was his way or the highway, the way most college coaches are with their players, but he did like a good argument, uh, which many people like myself who traipsed through his office found out the hard way. One of the points you make in your obituary of Smith, Alex, is that he affected this balance between taking the game very seriously. I mean, he was one of the innovators of using statistics to analyze style of play. And yet, at the same time, understanding that billions of people don't give a damn whether North Carolina wins or loses a basketball game. Yeah, and he grappled with that, you know, that, that he, he felt guilty and he questioned himself why it meant so much to him to win. Uh, he would always roll his eyes at the obsession over who was number one, rankings, ranking recruiting classes. And his protest to that was simply to say, you're not going to talk to our freshmen. Let them grow up and actually achieve something here in college before you and the press are going to get a word with them. So he, he was in this kind of battle, this debate with the public and, and public expectations. At the same time, he was in charge of the flagship program for college basketball where any fan's eyes were going to rest. So it was this weird thing. And where I found him to be most interesting were on those few occasions where he kind of let his guard down about that and would sort of let a peek into his struggle over, over that. You know, why is it that I, that I feel so good when we win when rationally I know it really doesn't mean all that much? I should be happy if we just play well. The other team beats us things that we can't control, why would that reflect poorly on us? So you don't hear that from any coach in any sport, um, certainly the revenue-producing sports these days, and it was such a refreshing thing to hear him talk publicly about it. So the comparison that you make um, that's really in- interesting and instructive in your obituary is between him and Mike Krzyzewski, two giants of coaching in North Carolina, longstanding rivals, beloved by their players, but really, really different approaches. Um, Can you explain uh, the differences as you see them? Well, first I should say that I rarely went to Chapel Hill without making a seven- or eight-mile trip uh, up Highway 15501 to Durham to the Duke campus. So I tended to see these two giants in short order after one another, so the the comparisons came really naturally. Krzyzewski, younger, kind of a striver uh, out of West Point, politically more conservative, coming to the game through the 80s uh, and the 90s, where you had the Reagan years, um, had this kind of American Enterprise Institute way of looking at things, people around him and, and Coach K himself not real happy that all this money being generated by the basketball program would find its way into these other non-revenue sports. Um, and also having a very kind of libertarian idea toward player development and we'll let each of you individually grow, um, and that will help forge the team. Whereas in Dean Smith, he had this classic New Deal liberal. I mean, uh, the, the, the bureaucracy of the Carolina program, you know, the jokes about how only Dean Smith could, could hold Michael Jordan under 20 points a game, and... But it came very naturally. I mean, politically, he was on the left. Um, he, he did believe in, in collectivism. Um, but the thing that I think at the end of the day, after having these natural comparisons drawn by visiting these two coaches, was the results were both excellent. You know, 
those are two different paths of getting to the same destination. And I would always leave my trips to Carolina kind of shaking my head uh, in admiration that you had these guys who I think really did did respect one another. Although when Shashevsky would say things like, well, if you put a player, if you put a plant in a jar, it'll grow to take the shape of the jar. Whereas if you just let them out there in, in the open space, who knows what it'll grow into. And it, it seemed like a not-so-veiled shot at, at Dean Smith. Although Dean Smith would say what we have to do is give everyone the dirt and the water and the sunlight and not <laughs> and actually worry about the seedlings that fall upon the rocky path and do not. Anyway, I think maybe I've extended the metaphor. I want to know about the integration. I want to know about his social activism and integrating lunch counters. And how did that play? I mean, it could maybe in the University of Town at Chapel Hill, it was an oasis. But the reason why it must have been controversial in North Carolina is that the lunch counters were segregated. So how was he able to navigate that? Just by being a good basketball coach, some of the other forces in the state didn't get upset with his uh, liberalism? Well, remember when this was happening, he wasn't yet the Dean Smith that we're eulogizing today. He was a guy who had a losing season his first year. He was hung in effigy. He wasn't yet on that solid ground that he later came to. But the flip side of that is his role, I think, has been somewhat overstated. Uh, his pastor, Bob Seymour, has actually told me over the years that this really wasn't Dean Smith uh, locking arms with Martin Luther King and, and traipsing down Franklin Street. Essentially what happened was that the athletic department was sending business to a, a restaurant in Chapel Hill that uh, got a lot of this custom, even though it observed Jim Crow. And Dean Smith just thought this was outrageous and, and brought it up within the athletic department and brought it up with his pastor and said, hey, if we're going to be patronizing this place, particularly as I'm about to bring Charlie Scott in, um, there's got to be a change made. So he, he was very much one of, of many people. Um, that being said, it was the South. Um, Piedmont, North Carolina was not Mississippi, um, but it was still standing up for something. And he did this again and again. I mean, he did it being very public about a nuclear freeze later on in, in his career. He was approached by the Democratic Party to run against Jesse Helms at one point, and I think it was good for everybody that he didn't. He would have been miserably uncomfortable in this, that kind of a spotlight, and probably even Dean Smith would have lost and we know, that. And we know that Michael Jordan wouldn't have endorsed him <laughs> <laughs> because Republicans buy sneakers. <laughs> well, Harvey Gantt didn't get the endorsement, but uh, That's right. maybe, maybe Dean Smith would have. But, yeah, he had this political activism, though I think it was informed very much by his faith. I mean, he it came out of um, this congregation that he was a member of in, in Chapel Hill. And, you know, I was talking to Scott Price on our staff earlier today a little bit. Scott went to Carolina. And, you know, we, we agreed that even John Thompson, somebody who had this kind of forbidding reputation, was somebody who, through his friendship with Dean Smith, um, a lot of people, white people, found kind of softened. Dean Smith really likes John Thompson. So there was more than just being on the vanguard, the ramparts of the civil rights movement. I think there were these very intense personal connections he had with Charlie Scott. He had with John Thompson. The friendship with Thompson came as a result of Dean Smith helping out one of John Thompson's players, a guy named Donald Washington. So very organic um, characteristic of the 60s, and maybe not quite as heroic as we'd like to think it is, because it happened in this relatively moderate part of the Alex, if, if Dean Smith represented this kind of moral front for how we should manage college sports, could you argue that 
he lost the war? You know, did the path that college basketball took in the 70s and 80s bother him? I mean, he coached almost to the year 2000. And could if Dean Smith showed up today, could he have become Dean Smith doing what he did? That's a great question. I know things like freshman eligibility drove him crazy. He wanted to see all freshmen forced to the sidelines to acclimate to college and keep the playing field level. And, of course, the great question that we're all asking ourselves here, he, he died over the weekend, but he was not really aware of what was going on over the last few years and therefore had no idea what had happened to this horrible academic scandal in Chapel Hill. And I do think that some of the outpouring that we've seen has been, just been on a scale that didn't come close. It, it so surpassed what, what John Wooden got when he died. I think people are, are eulogizing and remembering him today in part, a lot of Carolina people are, because they're able to think good thoughts. That This is a guy who, if he had known this stuff happened, wouldn't have tolerated. I think we can safely say that. And maybe in contrast with the academic scandal, too, Alex. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm talking primarily about the academic scandal. I just Do we know he didn't know? I mean, they said it went back 18 years. He retired in 97, so there was some overlap. There but... was some overlap, but I think these were people who were so on the inside were making it happen that if they were determined to make it happen, it was going to happen. And at that point, Dean Smith was probably pretty smug and secure that he had things on the right path. Or that's what people would like to think. And I've frankly been surprised that there haven't been more people wanting to spoil the eulogy a little bit by saying, hey, this did happen partly under his watch. Um, but a, a lot of what we're seeing, I think, over the weekend and now is, is a nostalgia for a time when you could manage the beast a little bit. And... Can you name any college coach basketball or football today who would say, no, none of this money belongs to me, the shoe money <laughs> belongs to the university, belongs to the women's soccer team? Um, that just doesn't happen anymore. And, and the thing is, he would sit you down and make a sincere, not a sanctimonious case, but a sincere, persuasive case that he really believed this. Yeah, maybe we can end, Alex. I mean, a lot of the eulogizing, as you've noted, has kind of put him on a higher plane above other coaches, particularly contemporary ones. And it seems like a lot of that is deserved. But he was also a basketball coach, a guy who wanted to win. Um, you mentioned in your obituary that he would grapple with officials. He would engage in gamesmanship. So maybe we can end by talking about um, some of those very human qualities and what you witnessed. What was, you know, Dean Smith, the, the competitor, the coach, the, you know, the guy who would indulge in gamesmanship? Oh, and it was on every level. I mean, playing golf with him, he would know everybody's score. Um, I always got the brunt end of it in his office. If it was maybe just some little statistical, uh, some game from the past that they played back in the late 60s that I thought I knew the result of, and he, of course, knew better. I, I would frequently leave this office and be looking stuff up. I'd have a little punch list of stuff I'd have to check, and he was always right. And that's the great irony, that this guy who would get into these memory games literally, at the end of his life, lost his memory. And it was so painful for those people close to him, um, players and family, obviously, and assistants like Roy Williams and Bill Guthridge to see that happen, because so much of his authority came from that. Um, so he, he lorded it over you in, in almost like uh, drinking game type quizzes and sports trivia back and forth, and, but always with a little bit of a needle. But then there'd be that, that smile 
creasing out over his face under that huge nose, and and you'd feel uh, you'd feel that he was kind of an old familiar, an old familiar shoe that you could slip your foot into in a way. Alex, thanks so much, and and great job on the stories over the weekend. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you guys. Alexander Wolf is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO, Four Decades, Three Murders, and One Very Rich Man Who Refused to Speak Until Now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO starting this past Sunday, February 8th. The Jinx is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information discovered during a seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. It was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Friedmans. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, a fictional account of Durst's life starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. Slate TV critic Willa Paskin raved about the jinx in her review. She called it unnerving and engrossing. You can catch it, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst on Sundays at 8, only on HBO. For the first time since 1999, the Alpine World Ski Championships are in the United States. Halfway through the two-week event, the U.S. is second on the medal table to Austria with three medals, one silver and two bronze. No gold, though. Should we be disappointed in our American skiing heroes? Should we bow down? to our Austrian ski overlords. Uh, To answer those questions, we have Nathaniel Venten, author of The Fall Line, How American Ski Racers Conquered, a Sport on the Edge. Nate, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, and so you were out there. You're back in New York now, um, but you were at the uh, ski championships in Colorado. And, you know, the premise of your book is that American ski racers have not only um, done well on the international scene, but that they've brought innovation to the sport and that they've changed it. So what in the f- in the first week of these uh, world championships kind of shows that, or has this event so far been disappointing for your American heroes? Well, I mean, we there hasn't been an American gold medal yet, uh, but that could change swiftly uh, in this in this last week of the championships because Ted Ligeti and, and Michaela Schifrin both have their big events. As far as you know, what what we've seen out there, you, you know, you have this very high tech stadium, this beautiful downhill course that was designed. The women's course was designed just for this race. There's there's a lot of money in uh, alpine ski racing suddenly, and and while people think of skiing as a as a pretty affluent sport, which it is, the U.S. ski team has always been uh, well historically was kind of um, impoverished. They didn't get money from the government like other national teams do. And uh, But over the years, with their success, they've built up quite an infrastructure. And that's sort of the monument to the team's success out there is this sort of sparkling race venue. And uh, Bodie Miller and Lindsey Vaughn are the big stars. You mentioned Ligeti and Schifrin as well. But Miller and Vaughn are really the ones that the the mythical casual sports fan knows about. Uh, Miller had a horrible crash where he lacerated his leg. If you're interested in disgusting, bloody visuals, you can find them online. Um, Let's start with him. 
Um, this was his first race back after an injury, and now this could be the end of his career, right? Yeah, there's a there's there's a pretty good chance that this was his last uh, event, his last race. He he hadn't raced all year, and he got most of the way through one run before crashing um, in very dramatic fashion, as he does. And uh, this injury required about 50 stitches on his lower leg, and so he's out for the season. There's no question about that. It's fairly unlikely that he'll come back next year, but he's definitely someone that we don't make predictions about. Yeah, and in fact, you, as you write in your book, to know Bodhi is to kind of accept this zen-like state where you just have to always exist in a state of never knowing what he really wants. And maybe he doesn't know what he really wants. Although he's this interesting guy, as you paint him, this contradiction between, I mean, unbelievably intense in his training, yet extremely unconventional, and also, mm, how would you put it, a little, definitely a little bit of a free spirit. Yeah, you know, he is he is a free spirit. He was he was born that way. He comes from uh countercultural roots. His parents were back to the land hippies. They were uh anti-Vietnam. His father actually a story that I unearthed for the book. His father to get out of the Vietnam draft deliberately damaged his own elbow. He had a an elbow injury from tennis and he went off in the woods and threw rocks until he aggravated it so badly that the army had to reject him. Um, so that's where Bodie Miller comes from, and uh, he is a pretty complex guy. He seems to me like a, a Pat Tillman type, almost. Like, unbelievably intense, but also definitely his own guy, and not going to let anyone else tell him what to do. That's true. That's a good analogy. He's got an unconventional attitude towards trophies and success and achievement. He he wants to uh, define it on his own terms. And so where he has this incredible athleticism that could have made him the dominant skier of the last 20 years, and he's still done very, very well. There's not an American man who's ever accomplished more on skis. He could have been even better in terms of the record books, but that wasn't really his chief aim. There were a lot of seasons where he left a lot of potential wins on the table because he he wanted to do things a little differently. I had a Bodie Miller moment at the 2006 Olympics in Turin that helped me understand the sport better, too. He, uh, you know, everyone was focused on the winning and, you know, on, on gold medals. And Miller said, you know, you go, you go down the mountain, you go down at crazy speeds, you turn around, you look at a clock, and that's it. It's not as if there's this level of consciousness in the moment of how you're doing. And that, to me, encapsulates sort of the craziness of this sport. I mean, the peril and the speed and, in some ways, the randomness because you're dealing with the surface. Have you skied? How, what is this relationship between the athlete and the insane nature of this dangerous sport? You know, as these skiers are going down a course, if, a lot of times they're moving at speeds they're very hard to convey with televised images. If you're going 80 miles per hour, you're going over 100 feet per second. If you are approaching a jump at that speed, you're going to see the uh, sort of horizon line where the snow ends, and you can just see maybe across the valley. If, you, if you're doing this, you've had your 90-minute inspection period in the morning where you study the course, but 
then you're going through it at really slow speeds and studying the snow and, and um, maybe you look at that horizon line where that jump will be and you pick out something on the horizon to aim for so you know you'll be on the right line when you land. But then when they're actually doing it, the you know the, their field of vision, everything's shaking, and really you're going so fast that to make you know the moves that you need to make, you need to be anticipating it way in advance. Uh, by the time you see that jump, you're going to be there in in less than a second. So they are in a, a mode of total concentration, total stimulation, and exhaustion. They get to the bottom of these courses after. 60 seconds or 90 seconds, they are in an anaerobic state uh, where their muscles are depleted of oxygen. Uh, so I think they, they go through a lot in these race courses. The farthest thing from their mind is how their competitors are doing. And they have these little victories for themselves that they've you know done the certain turn the way they wanted to do it or stayed reasonably efficient in all of their lines that they've chosen to ski down in the course. And, and I think uh, it's not until they get to the finish that they start comparing their runs to other people's. And, and Miller famously talks about the most important moment to him is right after he crosses the finish line, but before he looks at the scoreboard. And he has to, he says he has to be um, proud of himself in that moment if he's going to feel good, even about getting a gold medal. And you know, over the course of researching the book, and I believe him on that. I think he, uh, he, I think he's sincere about that. So, what's Lindsey Vaughn's relationship to victory? You know, as contrasted to Bodie Miller, she had won so many downhills um, this season. She finished fifth um, at the World Championships, and she got a bronze in the Super G, and both races behind uh, Tina Mazev, Slovenia. So, would she? take some Miller-esque satisfaction in a race well run, or is she about the hardware? I think she's more about the hardware. She She's a little bit more concerned about getting the gold medals on, on race day. And Tina Maz is, she's from Slovenia, and she is just a tiny bit older than Vaughn, but they go way back. They were competing against each other when they were 13 years old. And they are really, that's really a pretty ferocious rivalry there between the two of them. So I definitely don't think Lindsay likes finishing second to Tina or fifth. <laughs> yeah. So the sport itself, I mean, we've seen Lindsay Vaughn crash. We've seen Bodie Miller crash. These are the best. These are the best in their sport. They've all crashed. They've all had horrendous injuries. These courses are known as raptor and birds of prey. And all right, I won't criticize a little bit of uh, puffery in naming the course, but this thing has gotten extremely dangerous. And I wonder if there's any way to ratchet it down. Once you show that people can go that fast and survive most of the time, do you ever say, yeah, but we'd rather have them go less fast? Or are the people are the people who are worried about safety talking about things like, you know, helmets? Because I've, some a lot of the time it's, it's leg injuries that are just tearing apart your best skiers. So, you know, what's the state of trying to grapple with the safety involved? There is a lot of concern in the sport, in the people that govern the sport, about the speeds that the downhillers are reaching now. They've always tried to ratchet down the speed element, and it's difficult to do. The skis have gotten faster. The snow has gotten much faster because it's gotten harder. At the same time, the fencing has gotten very sophisticated. If you if you go to any of these World Cup or Olympic downhill courses, you would see some very elaborate fencing up. They've tried 
regulating the dimensions of the skis uh, because they believe that that's contributing to some of the accidents. Now, in the last five or six years, they've had some really bad accidents in skiing, and somehow Miller and Vaughn, even though they've had their bad injuries, haven't had one of the life-changing ones where, you know, they're in a coma or they lose a leg, uh, which are two things that have happened. There's actually a uh, a new innovation that's coming, and I think it's one of the sort of most radical technological advances, if they can make it work, and that is a, a sort of airbag that the the racers wear under their suits that inflates upon a big crash. They, it, it would, it's been adapted from motorcycle racing, and uh, it's an Italian company. They're, they've got some devices in the equipment itself that supposedly tell the the computer chip that the racer is upside down and it's time to deploy this airbag and they puff up like a marshmallow man. It's pretty dramatic. So that could be the future. Is women's skiing much less popular than men's skiing? And the reason I ask is with other sports, you know, basketball, it's not above the rim, it's below the rim. There are real aesthetic differences. But with skiing, it's a person going extremely fast down a mountain and they're in a ski suit. So I just wonder if there's a huge difference or it doesn't seem to Ameri- to me as an American they are, but maybe we're just crazy about Lindsey Vaughn. Some of the, the most dramatic downhills in the world are on the men's World Cup tour, and the women don't get a chance to ski them. It's often said that the women wouldn't be able to land some of the jumps. I, I don't know if that's true. I like to think that uh, Lindsey Vaughn will get a chance to ski on the Hanenkam course at Kitzbühel, Austria or the Lauberhorn in Switzerland. But typically, they don't give as as exciting courses to the women. An exception for that was in the 2010 Olympics in Whistler. The women's course there, where Lindsey Vaughn won her gold medal, was very dramatic. It was a lot of jumps in one very big jump at the end, and they sure did have some amazing crashes off of that last jump. But there is a difference. There are slightly higher speeds and bigger jumps on the men's tour. You know, in, in the conversation about danger and how skiing has changed in the last decade or decade and a half, Nate, one thing that seems to be coming up is the role of climate change um, and the requirement that these that these mountains manufacture snow and heavily water these courses, which makes them icier. Is that a, is that a legitimate concern? I know you, know you I know you address that in the book. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, climate change is is really having an effect on ski racing already. Some of the downhills, the great downhills like Kitzbühel are at relatively low elevations and, you know, future Olympic courses may be set at relatively low elevations where there's not necessarily a reliable snow cover every February. But climate change is already affecting downhill ski racing in in that Organizers are required to really, really ice these courses in a way that's that's hard to describe. It, it really is like a hockey rink. Um, they they're injecting water into the snow, and all of that's being done to assure the organizers that they will have a race, even if warm temperatures set in. That they'll have a race that they'll be able to televise it and therefore pay for it. So every course is now iced. The racers do like it. That typically the top racers like having an icy course because it's more fair. The racers in the back of the of the pack get a chance at a relatively smooth surface. But icier courses uh, lead to higher speeds, and higher speeds can lead to some crazy accidents. So it really is a lot of tension in the sport between the climate and the safety. All right, Nate, what are one or two things that you're looking for in the last uh, week of the 
World Championships in Colorado? Of course, the Americans need to uh, get a gold medal of some kind to satisfy uh, their supporters. Tina Maas of Slovenia, I think, is one of the great racers of all time, and she is possibly in her last major championships, and she might be going, she might be able to get five medals from this event, which is to say a medal in each of her disciplines. So that's definitely something to watch for. Ted Ligeti, Michaela Schifrin, those are two Americans who we're hoping to see them do something exciting. Hopefully uh, positive exciting rather than yeah, negative exciting. Hopefully, hopefully related to skiing also. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, Nate, thank you uh, so much. And his book is The Fall Line, How American Ski Racers Conquered a Sport on the Edge. Nate, thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, a quick announcement here at Slate. We're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners. We want more, constantly more. We are thirsty for more. We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy, how often you listen, how you find out about new podcasts and other related podcast matters. We created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Slate continue to make great podcasts about the things you love. To fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. Uh, you can find those show notes at slate.com slash hangup. So that's either slate.com slash survey or slate.com slash hangup to get to the survey. Thank you very much. In 1980, a bunch of amateur American hockey players took down the mighty Soviet machine, defeating the USSR 4-3 to at the Lake Placid Olympics in what's known as the Miracle on Ice. At least, that's what we call it here in these United States. In the documentary of Miracles and Men, Jonathan Hawk puts American heroes Mike Arruzioni and Jim Craig to the side for a couple of hours and investigates what the game meant to the Soviet Union and how events before and after the 1980 Winter Olympics shaped the USSR's hockey stars. In this clip, Hawk talks to journalist Seva Kukushkin, who covered the Miracle on Ice for the Soviet news agency. What did you write that night about the hockey game? That we lost. Nothing special. I wrote to Tass a short story. That Russian team played, and you have seen how they played. That's it. You wouldn't try to recreate No, next morning. Drama. No. What about the drama? Look, maybe it's a problem of Americans. You see, once a crazy kid kissed Sophie Loren, for example, and he is telling till the rest of his life, oh, I kissed Sophie Loren. Ask Sophie Loren if she remembers this. No. <laughs> Good Lord. That's different point of view. We are now pleased to welcome the Sophia Loren of Documentary Filmmakers to hang up and listen. John Hawk, welcome back to the show. Grazie, Josh. John, we chose that clip because it's amusing, because it mentions Sophia Loren, because it gives you the opportunity to use your Italian, but it is not representative of the attitudes of the Soviet players and journalists and everyone else that you talk to. Um, what's fantastic about this film, which is really remarkable, is how open and honest all these people are about the game and their lives, and they're not just sticking to the party line. Uh, so maybe you can start by telling us 
about how Of Miracles and Men was put together and whether it was a challenge to get these interviews and to get everyone talking about what were um, some painful experiences for them. Well, it really was difficult to get them to agree to sit down and talk about this game. They really weren't interested in doing it. We had a co-producer on the film, Christina Paseva, who was really instrumental in getting this. She worked in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow for 16 years, coordinating all the international sports events that the U.S. participated in over there. And in so doing, came to know personally Tretiak and, and Boris Mikhailov and pretty much everybody we wanted to interview, including the journalists. So she really worked on them, and they all did it without exception as a personal favor to her. Mikhailov was the most reluctant. He gave her no end of grief, right up to the point where he sat in the chair, just reading her the riot act in Russian as he was, you know, getting ready for the interview. But as soon as he sat in the chair, he softened a little bit. And I'm not sure these guys have been asked about it very much. It struck me that they didn't want to talk about that game necessarily. But once, and this is common to, I think, a lot of athletes, once you got them to talk about or ask them about everything else, Soviet hockey, the coaches, the lifestyle, what it was like to be part of the greatest team that was ever assembled, I mean, that seemed to me to be the key to getting them to open up. I think so. You know, they they were all really happy to talk about Tarasov, Anatoly Tarasov, who is the father of Soviet ice hockey and really the father figure to all these guys. And they love him and any chance to talk about how great he was, they're happy to do it. You know, Mikhailov, for a while, he was really tough. And at one point he got all upset. I asked him the question. I said, you know, you were always written about in the States as these robots, these unfeeling, just hockey robots. And something got lost in translation a little bit. And he started screaming at the translator, what is this guy? Well, I didn't know what he was screaming at the time. I, I didn't discover until I read the transcripts. He said, you know, what is this guy, an asshole? He comes here to my country and is calling me a robot. He thinks I'm... And and then she's saying, no, no, he's not saying that. He's saying he used to read that when he was a child. But he ended up being... He's a star of the film. Probably my He's favorite in well, yeah. well, the idea that they were robots, I think it was always, sure, yeah, there was a laziness. And the, the the Red Army was a machine in that they were efficient and effective. But, you know, as you point out, just in terms of hockey innovation, circuses and chess, I mean, they, they what they did was amazing. I don't know if others, you know, did Americans actually pick up on that? Where Did the hockey cognoscenti look at them and say, wow, that's really something to, uh, we should try to steal from tactically or, or did they think we couldn't do it yeah no well the real irony was that the first western team to play like that was the 1980 u.s team lou viro who was uh eventually a coach of the american team and and was very close with herb brooks and i, I don't know if he was a, technically an assistant coach or a scout when he was a very young hockey coach he sent a letter he had admired tarasov from afar he sent a letter addressed to Anatoly Tarasov, USSR, and he put a stamp on it and asking for his drills. He wanted to know his drills, and he got a letter back. And Tarasov said, if you send me a hundred of your drills, yeah. I will send you one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> so he sent him back a hundred of his drills, and he actually got an invitation 
to come to Moscow. And he met with Tarasov and then in turn invited Tarasov back to the U.S. And this is in 77 or 78. And Viro and Herb Brooks spent a week with Tarasov. Wow. Brooks really ran the U.S. team the way Tarasov ran the Soviet team. That's why they played 60 games leading up to the Olympics, because he was trying to put them through the paces that the early Soviet teams had to go through under Tarasov. And, uh, you know, that's the the great irony is that they were beaten at their own game. So so this movie spans a, a much longer stretch of time than just the 1980 game. Um, the Soviet team, as you note, won every major tournament from 1963 to 1973. And a huge event for them was the in 1972, where the Soviet amateurs went up against the professionals of the National Hockey League, and they weren't given much of a chance. And in this film, kind of as you do in the 1980 game, you, you know, in switching perspective, you get us, the audience, to root for the Soviets against the enemy, the evil, villainous Canadians. And, you know, Phil Esposito is saying they're going to go home and they're they're going to be unhappy. And they're, the Canadians are like slashing them and hitting the Soviets in the head. Um, so can you just descri- describe what that event was like and how your interview subjects remembered it? You know, Mikhailov at one point said, if, if, if I had a gun, I would have shot Bobby Clark right there. <laughs> And I said, well, you could have hit him. And he's like, no, no, you don't hit anybody on the ice. (laughs) So to be clear, Bobby Clark slashed the Russians' best player, Valery Karlamov, and broke his ankle to take him out because the Russians went out to a big lead in this series. Right. So these guys were still furious about the way they were treated. But at the same time, they really did admire the Canadian players. They they recognize that as individuals, the Canadians, maybe with the exception of Karlamov and Tretiak, the Canadians were individually far more skilled than these guys were ever going to be. It's just like Brazilian soccer players, Canadian hockey players with the puck are, you know, extraordinary. But that was their their coming out party, their bar mitzvah. That was when they became, you know, real men. That's a great point, John, that I want to touch on here. Uh, And we can listen to a clip of Jeff Daniels, who narrates the film, reading from Anatoly Tarasov, talking about this notion of how great the Canadians were individually. Several times I had the good fortune to see the one and only Bobby Hull, Tarasov wrote. He is simply great. There is no other word for him. I believe that if we could organize an individual game between him and one of our leading forwards, then I'm sure Bobby Hull would outplay any of them hands down. But hockey is a game that teams, not individuals, play. And that is why if two Bobby Hulls played against two of our boys, I think the Canadians would have less of an advantage. And if five Bobby Hulls played against five of our Soviet players, then here I simply would not take the chance of placing my bets on the Canadians. This is what really struck me. Anatoly Tarasov basically created... Soviet Russian hockey. They played bandy, this 11 v 11 game before that. And he was instructed to create a Soviet standard Canadian Western style hockey team. And he didn't do it by emulating the Westerners. He did it by figuring out his own system. 
And the footage you have here is remarkable, how he borrowed from ballet and he created all of these bizarre training rituals, these guys hurling themselves into trees and doing somersaults on the ice and climbing stairs, carrying giant weights. And you, you interviewed Tarasov's daughter, Tatiana. And, and here's where I think that the, the true irony of what the Soviets did becomes apparent, that we think of them as this red machine, these robotic, rigid, formulaic athletes. And in fact, Tarasov grounded his entire philosophy on artistry and freedom and giving the player the ability to do what he wants. That's why so much of the film is about Tarasov. You know, we started out just to make a film about the miracle game uh, from the other side. But as we discovered more and more about Tarasov and I started reading his books and when we interviewed Tatiana, who has coached 43 skaters to Olympic gold medals ever since the 60s when she started coaching. So she's the most accomplished figure skating coach in history as the daughter of maybe the greatest ice hockey coach in history. So the more we researched this, the more I fell in love with Tarasov and and love was really that's the great irony for us is that he was a person who believed that you foster love in a team and the players who love one another are the ones who are going to play together better and you had to play as a team he saw the game as five in attack five in defense and that if these players were going to play their best and and create for each other and work for each other they needed to really love each other and you know, that's, that's such a beautiful romantic notion about sport. And uh, I don't know if it's because of my NFL film's roots or what, but I just, you know, I, I'm a sucker for that. I fall for that every time. And, and I think it was real. And it made this all so interesting and, and fresh and new and surprising. And, and that's why we made the film so long. So to the United States, this is, of course, the greatest game ever played. The biggest upset It will probably never be uh, knocked off that perch because of the dynamics of the Cold War. To the Russians, however, it was a great loss. It was a great shame. Um, it was a great surprise. And yet I was thinking of the analogy. Maybe it's something like the 1988 bronze medal uh, Olympic basketball team, because after that, the United States regrouped in basketball and founded the dream team and uh, continued to dominate. So the Soviets, then the Russians, continued to dominate in hockey. And I also wouldn't think that it would occupy as much of the national consciousness just because of how people are to dwell in defeat is less likely than to uh, exult in victory, but also because of propaganda. So what does it mean to Russians? Yeah, I think that's a, a perfect analogy. I think that they know of it and sort of vaguely remember it. But uh, nobody was sent to the gulag over it. In fact, there were a couple sacrificial lambs, Mikhailov and Petrov, who were the two oldest players on the team. Mikhailov had been the captain for 10 or 12 years. And uh, right after the game, Tikhonov, Viktor Tikhonov, the coach, said, uh, Boris, I think it's about time you retire. So they cut the older guys and turned their attention to rebuilding. I mean, they, those guys all still you know, went on to their careers, often great careers, and are, and are still national heroes. The important thing to recall, as you mentioned, the propaganda, they didn't write about this game. They didn't do TV shows about it. The guys on the team had never really spoken at length about it. And I think that's part of why they were so forthcoming. So what you hear from the Soviet players is, um, you know, what we've heard about the game as well, is that benching the goalie Trediak was 
a key moment in the game. It was tied at two after the first period. The coach Tikhonov takes uh, Trediak and says, "You're you're out of the game, dude. Uh, we're not, you know, we're we're putting in Mishkin. Um, you have let us down." And the players talk about how this was a a terrible moment, and they couldn't believe that the the coach would do this, and it you know gave the Americans resolve and the idea that the Soviets were weakened. But if you look, if you compare to the exhibition game of um, you know prior to the Olympics, the Soviets had beaten the U.S. ten to three. Um, the final score in this game was four to three. So the big difference was, you know, the Soviets scored ten and then they scored three. The the Americans scored about the same number of goals. So are we focusing on the wrong issue here, or do you buy into the the fact that this was just a huge psychological blow? Yeah, I think I think we're focusing on exactly the right thing. And I think if you want proof, empirical proof that these guys were not robots but human beings with uh, psyches that could be cracked, that was the moment because Treciak had been with the team longer than anybody. He, he came up when he was 17. He was, even though he was a goalie and not an offensive player, he was Wayne Gretzky to them. He was, you know, Babe Ruth to them. He was the guy that all the others always counted on. And maybe in hockey, because the goalie is so important in, in big games, uh, you know, the hot goalie in the playoffs in the NHL always carries a team to the cup. And that seeing him sitting on the bench with this glazed look in his eyes, he described it as an out-of-body experience. He couldn't believe what was happening. They panicked. They panicked. Sergei Makarov, who is the right wing on the international hockey sportocrat all-time team with Gretzky at center and, and Karlamov at left wing, this guy was as accomplished as any right wing who ever played. He said, once they took Trechiak out, we were panicked. We were just so stressed. We couldn't even think about scoring goals. We just didn't know what was going on. And, and uh, the Americans played much better than they had. The Americans certainly played the game of their lives. And, and they were a very good team. And the game at Madison Square Garden was an aberration for them. There are some people who claim to this day that Herb Brooks through the game deliberately to psych out the Soviets. I'm not sure I buy that given having watched the game again a few times, but they panicked and, you know, they were unprepared. They hadn't slept well. They, they, they were kind of miserable. And the coach who ruled by humiliation, he loved nothing more than to diminish the players who thought they were great and greater than he was. There's a story about a, a player whose father was on his deathbed and he wanted to leave practice to go see his father before he died. And Tikhonov said, well, you're not a doctor. What, what difference is it going to make if you're there? And he wouldn't let him go. So he had an opportunity to humiliate Trechiak on the world stage, which only strengthened his control of the team. And, and uh, as uh, Slava Fetisov says in the film, he miscalculated. <laughs> John, this is really a fantastic film, and um, there are screenings coming up if you missed the premiere on Sunday. It's on ESPN2 on Tuesday the 10th, Friday the 13th, Monday the 16th, Saturday the 21st. Then there's a Saturday afternoon on ABC, the 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern, and then Sunday the 22nd on ESPN at 3 p.m. It's um, coming up on the 35th anniversary, so there's some good uh, timing there. 
congratulations on the film. And um, everybody out there should make sure to watch. Thank you, Josh. Love you guys. All right. It is time for After Balls. And it's got to be Bandy, Stefan. You mentioned yeah. Bandy in our um, conversation with John Hawk. It's known as Russian hockey, but it's really more like soccer on ice, 11 on 11. What sport could be better than 11-11 soccer on ice? And they used to flood soccer fields in the winter and played their game on it, Bandy. Also, it's called Bandy. It's a good name. Bandy. It is a great name. Let's not name. undersell the greatness of the name Bandy. I was well aware of Bandy because there were like three pages about Bandy in that book that I found in my basement about the rules of the games. There are a few sports which go with the phrase it about, to golf it about, to darts it about, to football it about, <laughs> but Bandy does work. Yeah. Bandy, anyone? Uh, Mike Pesca, what's your Bandy? Keeping on the Dean Smith theme, I talked to my friend Jared Formanard, and uh, in 1993, I was living in Atlanta as I was a student at Emory University, and the Final Four was being played just a scant, I don't know, 10-hour drive away in New Orleans. So I said, what the hell, let's go. This is what you do as a college student. And You drive around. slow, dude. I drive slow? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, okay, maybe I'm just uh, saying that to hype the commitment. What is it, eight hours away? Maybe seven. seven oh, my seven, God. Seven, well, eight. I think Freaknik might have been in town, so that screwed up with traffic. Anyway, so we drove to New Orleans, and at this time, I had been to, oh, some round of the NCAA tournament every year for the three years prior, and I would be going for a few years later as my favorite sporting event because I like sports and I like randomness and I love scalping tickets, and it is the greatest sporting event, scalp tickets. Not a lot of people really have done the math on this, and maybe this has changed. I mean, I haven't actually looked at it since I became a professional sports reporter who doesn't need to scalp, and in fact, if he were to scalp, would be in quite a bit of trouble, as should be the case. So the NCAA tournament... Final Four is just the greatest opportunity because the championship game, they're always held in domes, and this one was held in the Superdome, and half the fans just are desperate to get the hell out of town. So it's a really, really easy ticket to get. Of the big sporting events, it's the easiest one to get. And my friend Jared, who was down there as a UNC undergrad, as a kid who grew up a little bit in New Jersey, but then the family moved to Carolina, and his license plate, which, you know, first in flight license plate, had a, some UNC slogan on it. I think Virginia and Carolina were two of those states where it was really easy to get a customized license plate anyway so he bought us tickets or me tickets for like five bucks and i went down and we saw chris weber right there in person calling time out and then later on bourbon street we went out and there were members of the michigan team on bourbon street and everyone mocking them with a timeout sign and i also remember that was the tournament where cbs had just fired mike francesa as its in-studio and analyst, which is such a different time to get a... Wait, wait, wait. Mike Francesa was Mike, the in-studio analyst Francesa, on CBS? Right. They would come back from a break and they'd say, they'd say, Mike, you know a lot about basketball. See, Francesa had picked Seton Hall to uh, go to the Final Four or win the championship when they went to the finals again against Michigan, made his bones and came up in CBS. But it's now that slot is always given to a former coach or a player, but then it was Francesa and they fired him. And I remember talking to Leslie Visser, asking her, why you guys fire Francesca? And she's like, what is this 20-year-old bearded dude asking me for? Anyway, I haven't yet brought that up with Leslie Visser. So it was a great experience overall. I wasn't necessarily a huge Carolina fan, but if I thought about it, just like the default settings, if you like things that are good in sports, you would like Dean Smith in Carolina. I mean, that's 
what makes the uh, scandal and what happened post Dean Smith all the more shocking for that school to be the uh, the place where it all went down. So great memories there. And then I asked Jared, who he, he was always involved in the sports department in one way or another. What's a good Dean Smith memory? So talking about how he hated freshmen, Jared said this once during a blue white scrimmage. He, Dean Smith, sat next to me at the scorer's table, and we briefly discussed who a rebound put back should be credited to. The PA announcer said Clifford Rogier, a freshman. Dean never wanted freshmen to get credit for anything, and I mumbled that I thought George Lynch tipped it in. Dean said he thought so, too, walked over, and made the scorer change it during a scrimmage, during a blue-white scrimmage. And then Jared writes, I was so proud. And I think, I mean, look, history shows Dean Smith was right. Clifford Rogier transferred to Louisville after scoring, I think, two points in that scrimmage. And that was the year that George Lynch went on to uh, lead the Carolinas to Smith's second championship. Taking a basket away from Clifford Rozier in a scrimmage is the most important play in Dean Smith's <laughs> career. Pretty much it. <laughs> Stefan, what's your bandy? Well, I have some now I can die in peace, sportocrat-related news, Josh. While I cannot be entirely certain, it is possible that my work has reached the star of United Passions, soccer's triumph of the will, the man who believes he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize, the president, apparently for life, of the Federación Internacionale de Football Asociación, that giant of sport in our time, Sepp Blatter. If not Air Blatter himself, then at least the FIFA Ministry of Propaganda flags who write the words that are attributed to him. How so? Well, regular listeners will recall, or listeners who listened last week, will recall that my afterball was about the 2015 World Handball Championship held in Qatar. Or Qatar. What did I say last week? Qatar, Josh? I think Qatar. I'm going to go with Qatar this week. In what Qataris, that sounds so weird, in what Qataris will forever call the miracle on Terraflex sport and performance floor, the host country won the silver medal, knocking off Austria, world number one Germany, and Poland before falling to France in the finals. As I detailed, the Qatar team wasn't very Qatari. The roster included players from France, Spain, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, Serbia, Cuba, Tunisia, Egypt all of whom received quickie and no doubt temporary and second-class citizenship and petrodollars in exchange for donning the legendary maroon jersey of the tiny Gulf state. Without the foreigners, Qatar would have been pounded into sand. At Josh's urging, I expanded the afterball into a full story for Slate. Feel free to pause the podcast now and go read it. The story detailed the complaints about Qatar's run, complaints about biased officiating, FIFA-style handball bribery, cronyism, and corruption, and what the handball championships might presage for the 2022 World Cup, which was, of course, delivered to Qatar, allegedly in exchange for sacks of more petrodollars. I noted that it would be a lot harder to do in soccer what Qatar did in handball, which lets a player represent another country if he hasn't played for his national team in three years. I should have also said that soccer has no such rule, that its requirements are stricter, and that Qatar couldn't just buy up the best players from abroad. So Lionel Messi will not be representing Qatar in 2022. I don't think. But I didn't say that. So Sepp Blatter did. My story posted on Thursday. On Friday in the FIFA House Oregon FIFA Weekly, Blatter had something to say about handball. His column, Presidential Note, 
adorned by a lovely sketch of the great man, opens with a steaming pile of FIFA bullshit. The fact that sports builds social bridges and brings cultures together cannot be stressed often enough, Blatter said. However, what happened at this year's Men's Handball World Championship in Qatar stretches this notion to the point of absurdity. I'm not doing the accent, people. Blatter said the Qatari team didn't violate handball's regulations, but it did contradict the spirit of a national team. As for football, well, I'd like to think that Sepp Blatter was winking at me when he wrote the next sentence. This kind of scenario, all right, I'm breaking into the character now, would not be possible in football. Blatter went on to lay out FIFA's naturalization guidelines, blah, 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 we're not handball, blah, blah, blah. Qatar faces the huge challenge of forming a competitive national football team by 2022, but won't be able to do it by naturalizing players because unlike the IHF, FIFA does not allow this. Indeed, scoring a goal with the hands is not permitted in football either. Always good to end with a joke. All right, I can't prove that FIFA was responding to my story, but they had to be, right? When it comes to Qatar, FIFA needs to cover its sportocratic behind as much as possible. But come on, we all know that it is totally possible that sometime in the next few years, FIFA will announce that to reflect the reality of our increasingly global and transient world, we must acknowledge the free movement of citizens. FIFA must recognize this and help assist the growth of football around the globe. And then FIFA will pretend that nothing is out of the ordinary. Last week, all hell broke loose at an Africa Cup of Nations game. Fans of Equatorial Guinea attacked visiting fans from Ghana. Ghanaian fans wound up on the field. The game was abandoned early. Rioting spread outside the stadium. Tear gas was fired. Sepp Blatter's response, he blamed the Western media. We only talk about the bad. Football, which is such a good thing. Let it live. Leave it in peace. It's well organized. Let them do it. Today, the world opens the newspapers, watches television, and sees only murders and killing. We never talk about princesses marrying anymore, Seth Blatter said. Fucking FIFA. What do you uh, make of the latest princess marriages, Stefan? I think we should talk about that. That's a good point. Um, I understand that the, uh, the Monaco princess is being betrothed to the uh, Prince of Denmark. I don't know if you heard about that, Josh. I've been following it closely. Hot and I princess like to talk marriage. About it. Hot princess marriage. It's some hot princess marriage, and I think that we'll be doing more stories um, about princesses marrying on Slate from now on, right? Josh, what's your bandy? It's funny you mention Monaco, Stefan. It's always funny when is you it? mention... It's always funny. It is. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to talk about micronations today. Uh, I wrote a series for Slate a few years ago called Big Man Little Countries. I traveled to Andorra, Monaco, San Marino, Liechtenstein, ended my trip at the small states of Europe games in Liechtenstein uh, and Olympics for the teen tiniest of countries. The idea there is that these wee locales can't possibly compete against the big bad nations. So this is an opportunity for them to take home some hardware and not get stomped on. But on occasion, the micro nations can rise up to challenge their macro-nation oppressors, in particular in sports that those big countries do not care about. That may partially explain why San Marino, with a population of 31,488, is the dominant force in European club baseball. According to the website for the International Baseball Federation, baseball comes to San Marino in the late 1960s, led by the passion that some guys just returned from the United States have transmitted to local boys. Some guys. The country's top club team is named T&A San Marino, and it is a part of Italy's Serie A1. T&A, by the way, gets its name because it's sponsored by the corporation Tecnologia e Ambiente SA. T 
TNA, of course. Which is a purveyor of soft porn, right? <laughs> <laughs> TNA has won the Italian League in 2008, 2011, 2012, and 2013. Wow, they're the San Francisco Giants of, of Italy. <laughs> but they, they also, more impressively, won the European Cup in 2006, 2011, and this past year, beating ASD Ramini behind such players as Jairo Ramos, Giovanni Pantaleoni, Joe Mazzucca, Adolfo Gomez, and Junior Guerra. Pantaleoni likes to wear the short pants, doesn't he? As you might have guessed, Stefan, uh, these dudes are not from San Marino. Guerra, no, they're from Qatar. <laughs> Guerra, for instance, is a Venezuelan who played in the Mets and Braves organizations, then moved on to the independent league Wichita Wingnuts before signing on in San Marino. Though it's not as common as in basketball, baseball players who cannot quite make it to the majors do go to Europe to get some paychecks out of the game. Uh, the guy who put together the San Marino team is Mauro Mazzotti, who's a scout for the Baltimore Orioles, in addition to being the San Marino GM. I found an interview with him on SanMarinoBaseball.com, which Google helpfully translated from Italian to English for me. Question, what is still missing to the team? Answer, we are working on foreigners. Uh, the same site also has an interview with the aforementioned Mr. Pantaleoni, a genuine Italian player who is retiring after this season from TNA San Marino. The interviewer asked him to name the strongest hitter he's seen up close in all his years and as a player. Pantaleoni answers, James Vatcher, saying, incredible player, one of elegance and professionalism out of the ordinary. For the rest of my career, I have brought with me the memory of how he prepared and managed the games. For one thing, I had never before seen a player do meditation. Oh. Hmm. Jim Vatcher, 27 hits in the major leagues from 1990 to 1992, one home run for the Phillies. But in Italy, the dude was like Barry Bonds. He played for Ramini between the ages of 34 and 36, never had an OPS below 1,000. So just general advice. For Americans, if you're looking to extend your career, be considered a god in one of the smallest countries in the world. You know where to go. You know what to do. Be like Jim Vatcher. You might be able to marry a princess, too. <laughs> We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.